precious song and a precious truth to sing together. Thank you, music team, for leading us and focusing our hearts and attention on our precious Savior. Well, uh, let's go ahead and take out your Bibles this morning, and I would like you to open them to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, raise your hand as our ushers walk down the uh, aisle here, and they'd be more than happy to give you one to use today or to keep if you don't have your own copy. Hebrews is in the New Testament. If you're not familiar exactly where it is, don't feel afraid to just go to the table of contents in the, in the front of your Bible and find a page number there. But we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at, looking at chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. And we're in the middle of a preaching series, sermon series, on what church membership is and what it looks like according to the Bible. The elders have created a, a document that details nine different ways the Bible calls us to commit to a local church. This uh, document is available at the white tables at either entrance. So if you haven't seen it yet or if you've lost your copy or whatever, feel free to grab another one. And we have done this because we firmly believe that it is important doctrine to teach church membership because Jesus' church is strengthened when his followers are committed in a formal way to a local assembly of fellow believers. Or to put it negatively, the church is spiritually weakened when believers have a low view of commitment to the local church. So in an effort to continue uh, building upon this theme and building the strength of our church body here, we're going to focus on the third commitment in that document, which is about regularly uh, gathering together on Sunday mornings. It's about what we're doing right now. Now it says this, I will regularly participate in our church's gatherings for the purpose of corporate worship, prayer, fellowship, and service. Now, there's an there's a unfortunate and sad trend in Protestant evangelical, evangelicalism at large, uh, where the trend is people are neglecting to gather together uh, on Sunday mornings in particular. It's not too long ago that Newcastle faced the COVID dilemma together, where we were uh, um, we were forced to wrestle with whether we should gather or not, and our ability to do so was threatened. And all over the world, churches saw a dip in attendance for almost three years, 2020 to 2022. But even though the pandemic is over, there is a lasting effect on churches. A recent uh, research poll dis uh, found that uh, even though the churches are all gathering together again, the average attendance is at 85% pre-pandemic levels. And I can assure you the elders of Newcastle can testify to this reality as we have spent a lot of time seeking to regather wandering sheep. Unfortunately, the pandemic isn't the main issue. It only boosted a downward trend in attendance that was already occurring. You can look at recent uh, Gallup polls and, and Pew Research polls that show just a little over one-third of U.S. adults attend a religious service regularly. And even then, the definition of regular varies wildly. Now, everyone is going to be absent from corporate worship from time to time for legitimate reasons. 
You get sick. Your kids get sick. Debilitating health issues. You're out of town, funerals, whatever. It could be there. Many different reasons. But that's not the problem that these polls are observing. The problem is the decline in people's habits. For many people, church attendance is irregular because church isn't a priority. Other things like vacations, sports, hunting, hobbies are allowed to displace and replace gathering with the saints. This person might justify in their minds that they have a lifestyle of personal worship or family worship, and that is sufficient. They would say, me and Jesus, we're good. I worship him all the time. Now, see, the point, though, of our membership commitment isn't to guilt people into having a perfect attendance record. Just being physically here doesn't mean you're necessarily doing anything that's pleasing to God. He regularly rebuked the Israelites for going through the external motions of worship without a true love for him. And every church today has people who are doing the same thing. It's possible to be a faithful attender, but not a faithful member. That's why our commitment says, I will regularly participate in our church's gatherings. See, God wants us to be engaged in worship together, not standing quietly during the singing, not checking out mentally during prayer, not sleeping during the sermon, okay, no sleeping today, not coming to be served but not do any serving in return, and not evaporating out of the building as soon as the last song starts or ends. If I were to survey everyone in this room and ask you, is going to church important? I would think probably everyone would say, yeah, of course. But if I asked you, why is it important? Why are you here? I think the answers would vary. It is my goal this morning to equip you with the proper biblical answer to that question. I believe the biblical reason why you should be committed to regularly gathering together is because corporate worship is the fullest expression of God's plan for us to enjoy and celebrate him on earth. If you want to enjoy God fully, if you want to worship him and glorify him fully, you will regularly be at church on Sunday morning. And don't get me wrong, private worship with the Lord is an essential part of your life. Without it, you would not be able to be here with us together this, wor- this morning to worship. But regularly gathering together is the culmination of God's plan to be glorified through the church. How so? Because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, though never less. Another way to say that is the combined effect of a group of parts is greater than the sum of their individual contributions, even though they are never less in value. For example, a wristwatch with all of its intricate cogs and springs, a cookie with all of its individual ingredients, an orchestra with all of its individual instruments, the human body with all of its individual parts and organs, all come together to have a greater significance as a whole than their parts do operating by themselves. The individual parts are not less important, but they have a greater effect when combined together. God designed the worship of the gathered church to have a greater effect 
than when believers only worship alone, though their personal worship is never less important. When you fully understand this reason, the question will change from why should you go to church to why wouldn't I go to church? And so your heart will start to sound like the psalmist in Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And when you can't make it to church, for whatever reason, your heart would longingly say Psalm 42.4. How I used to go with the congregation to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise as we celebrated the holy festival. I believe our text in Hebrews this morning supports this mindset about corporate worship. So let's look at the passage together. Would you, if you're able, please stand with me in honor of the public reading of God's word. And please follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you would, please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Father, this is such a joyful celebration to be here this morning, and I pray that as we walk through your word, uh, you would make it abundantly clear to our hearts Uh, how precious a time this is and how important a time this is where we are gathered together. I pray that the significance of it will be very clear and I pray it will be impressed upon our hearts that what we are doing is no small thing and that it will just lead to abounding joy and satisfaction and celebration of who you are this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to see and grasp and embrace and apply the truth in our lives. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. As we walk through just these two verses, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to give us three reasons, motivating reasons, why you should commit to regularly participate in corporate worship. And the first reason you should do so is because it's your purpose. It is your purpose. Throughout, now, throughout the whole letter of Hebrews, the writer has been making an argument to the Jews that Jesus is far better than anything connected to the Old Covenant. He's positively putting Jesus at the center of the stage and showing them that the old, even showing them in the Old Testament, how Jesus is supreme over everything. So he then urges them throughout the letter to embrace the new covenant in Jesus and warns them many times not to apostatize and go back to the ways of the old covenant. So within the context of our verse, verse 15, he begins with this, with this phrase, through him that's Jesus, through him, then, and we'll stop there. That word then is an important word. It's a transition word and it indicates something's taking place here. It's usually translated therefore. And if you have like the King James, the NIV or the Holman, you'll see the word therefore. What therefore is there is it indicates it's there for a reason. So you wanna go backwards and look at why it's there. What led to this point in time? So let's back up and see what's going on. Look in your text just at Hebrews chapter 12, the last two verses of chapter 12. 
The writer says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The writer says, because we have received a citizenship into an unshakable kingdom through the gospel of God through Jesus, the only appropriate response is to worship with reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. And then chapter 13 in its entirety goes on to detail what does acceptable worship look like? If God wants us to worship a certain way, what does it look like? So when you jump back to our verse in verse 15, the writer is continuing to tell us what the appropriate response is, and that is to continually offer up praise to God together. The context surrounding this verse already couches this command in the realm of corporate worship, but we also see that in verse 16 as our worship includes how we treat one another. Another way to summarize these two verses is that we should continually worship together because it's the reason why you were saved. You were both created and you were saved to worship God with other people. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created us in his image for a purpose, but what does that mean to be made in his image? A lot of it's described right there in just that verse. It means we are creaturely reflections of God's relational harmony within the Trinity, right? Let us make man in our image. We also creaturely reflect his character, his attributes, and his rule over creation. We're like mirrors that reflect God's glory throughout the earth and back to him. He made us with the capacity to have relationships so that we can have a a glorifying relationship with him and enjoy being with him. But God didn't create just one person to worship this way. He started by making two complementary persons, male and female, in his image. But wait, there's more. Then in verse 28, he says he, makes, he wants more people to do that. He tells Adam and Eve, says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first two worshipers were tasked with making more image bearers, making little disciples, so that the world would be filled with image bearers who would worship God together. But, as you know, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and as a result, all of us have been born with an evil and corrupted nature that desires to worship creation rather than the creator. And because of our sin, we're in desperate need of a savior who can deliver us from the penalty of our sins and also its power. So, even though we were created to worship God together, we had to be saved by God so that we could fulfill that purpose. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God's redemptive plan and action in saving a large group of people for the purpose of worship. God chose to save Abraham and promised to make a great nation through him. As Abraham's 70 descendants incubated and grew in Egypt, they emerged through the Exodus as a numerous nation, the numerous nation of Israel. Why did God make a nation and save them from Egypt? 
In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. See, Israel was chosen and saved in order to be a group of priests serving and worshiping God together and representing him to the rest of the world. But they didn't keep the covenant with God. Their hearts were hardened. So at the right time in history, God sent his son into the world to die on the cross to save his people and institute the new covenant promised to Israel. And but within God's plan to save Israel, he also included a a redeemed group called the church. And our purpose as a church today is the same as Israel's. The apostle Peter applies Exodus 19 to the church too. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, he wrote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, the overall tenor, the overall theme throughout Scripture is people collectively being saved to worship God together. You see, the fullness of our worship of God is expressed when we are gathered together as a kingdom, a holy nation, a priesthood. Instead of beaming you up into heaven Star Trek style, as soon as you were converted to Christianity, God left you here on earth. You would think, wouldn't it be better if I were in heaven, glorified, no more sin, and worshiping God? That seems better, right? God says, no, I'm going to leave you here on earth to wrestle with your sin and demonstrate how I am the ruler of your life amongst the world, and I'm going to put you together with a bunch of other broken sinners who have been saved so that you can glorify me. Matt Merker wrote this, uh, wrote on, on it, Matt Merker wrote a book on corporate worship, and he insightfully wrote, we don't go to church to worship. We worship because we are the church. See, the purpose that you were created and that you were saved for is also your purpose for all eternity. Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 12, paints this picture for us of the future. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. What a glorious glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. You have all of the saints gathered together worshiping the Lord. And when we do that, in the great diversity of all different types of people from all over the world, all spanning back throughout history, it then makes the angels go, yeah, God, you're awesome. They see the church doing that and they're like, yes, this is good, I'm gonna worship too. It's a huge group worshiping together. But, 
what we do here is supposed to be a foretaste of what that's going to be like. Now, lest you think that being here on a Sunday morning is just a duty, the other reason we ought to regularly participate in corporate worship is because it's not just your purpose, it's also your privilege. It is a privilege to do so. Look back at Hebrews 13, 15. It says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Everything in this verse indicates that corporate worship is an undeserved and unimaginable privilege. First, it's a privilege because God graciously allows you to worship him. The verse says, through him then, let us continually offer up praises. And and what that means is that you're not allowed to worship God on your own. There is a requirement Psalm 23, verses 3 through 4, sorry, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, asks an important question about who is allowed to worship God. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The answer is, those who are holy, who are blameless and sinless, can ascend the hill of the Lord, are, are allowed to worship God. But the problem is, nobody is blameless and sinless. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has a right to worship a holy God. We don't deserve it, and we're not allowed to do it. But God graciously allows us to worship by making a way through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Hebrews 10, 19 tells us that through faith in Jesus, we can approach God in worship without fear of being destroyed. That's nice, right? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Jesus said the penalty you deserve for sin, Jesus paid the penalty you deserve for sin so that you could have the privilege of enjoying God and celebrating him. Now, if you get invited to your friend's wedding, you have the privilege of being there to honor the bride and groom. If you're asked to be a part of the bridal party, you get an even greater privilege If you get asked to be the best man or maid of honor, you'd be given an even greater privilege. It's not something you had a right to. It's not something you earned. It was graciously given to you. And the privilege of the position then is enjoying closeness with the bride and groom while you celebrate them and honor them. In a similar way, Jesus is the only way we are granted permission to draw near to God, to enjoy him, and to celebrate him. It's a privilege. Second, it's a privilege because God enables you to worship. So not only does he allow you to worship, he also gives you the ability to do so. The fact that you are physically here today and that you are alive is a gift of God. The fact that he sustained your health enough to be here is a gift from God. He protected you on your drive here. He allows you to hear, to see, to speak. 
He gave you a new heart so that you can understand and respond to spiritual things. All of these are undeserved privileges that enable you to worship. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 1 Corinthians 4.7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We don't always think about it in this way in boasting, but when we take those things for granted, we're boasting. We ought to remind ourselves of the privilege that it is to be here because we don't deserve it and we didn't earn it. Third, it's a privilege to worship God because he graciously gathers and unites us together for worship. When you were saved, lots of supernatural things happened all at once. Regeneration, faith, illumination, repentance, sanctification, justification. A lot of those shun words. But one of the things that can easily be overlooked is that you were united into Jesus Christ as a member of his church. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors to illustrate this reality. We are pictured as being parts and members of Jesus' body. We are his bride. We are the temple and building of God. We are branches on a vine, citizens of a kingdom, and flock, the sheep in in his flock. Each of these metaphors are wonderfully profound and describe how we are united together as a church. Ultimately, your understanding of the church, your theology, will affect your understanding of corporate worship. It's like a family dinner a family or a family reunion. It's a unique time together where we celebrate and enjoy our common bond in Jesus. Gathering together is far more unique than anything else because only the church is the mouthpiece of God's kingdom. Only the church is the visible manifestation of an invisible savior. Only the church is the body and bride of Christ, the temple of God, a new spiritual family. Only the church displays God's wisdom to the angels in heaven and motivates them to worship. And only the church is led and guarded by spiritually qualified shepherds. In addition to that, the gathered church manifests God's presence more fully when we are gathered together. Many people want to experience God's presence. Many people are looking for some kind of worship experience. In the Old Testament, people had to go to the temple to draw near to God's special presence. But now, we are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, that's not a singular you, you individually, it's a plural you. See, Paul was from the Midwest. He said, y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The emphasis of scripture is on the corporate indwelling of the Spirit. Matt Merker, again, puts it well in his book when he wrote, quote, God's dwelling place has a congregational shape. If we hope to encounter God's presence when we come to church, we ought to expect to find him in and with one another, rather than primarily in our own personal feelings and intuitions. A church service isn't mainly the place for me to have a souped up private quiet time. It's the place for me to meet God by meeting with his spirit-filled people. And when I was growing up in Kansas, I remember my dad getting us tickets to watch the Jayhawks play at Allen Fieldhouse in Lawrence. And at that time, it was on the Sports Illustrated top 10 places to watch a, uh, a sporting event. You didn't have to twist my arm to go. 
And you didn't, I didn't have to struggle to sing and to chant and to cheer and celebrate with 16,000 strangers that I did not know because we were all rooting for the same team. It didn't feel like a chore to be there because I enjoyed it. I loved participating. It was a privilege to be there. When we see corporate worship as the unique thing that God made it to be, when our theology is deep, then our worship won't be seen as a duty, but as a joyful privilege. We have to be careful and balanced here because, as I said earlier, I'm not saying that your personal worship is unimportant. That's why the statement, the whole is greater than the sum, though not less, is a helpful illustration. John Piper, in one of his recent sermons, captures this biblical balance well. He says, quote, the New Testament forbids us to forget, neglect, or minimize the radical, essential, eternal significance of the individual worshiping human person. And the New Testament forbids that we forget, neglect, or minimize the coming into being of the blazingly beautiful bride of Christ who is more than the sum of her flaming parts, though not less. We will maintain this balance in the coming weeks, the balance between personal and corporate worship, when we preach on your church member commitment to personal holiness. But for now, we'll focus on our corporate manifestation. But finally, it's a privilege to worship because God gives you guidance on how to worship him. God was explicit in the old covenant by giving Israel 613 commands on how to worship him in the law. God cares. He cares about how we worship him. And when Israel did it in its own way, it did not go well. There were severe consequences. When they worshiped a golden calf, a lot of people died. When Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord, they died, right? When Israel continually just went through the motions externally but didn't truly obey God in their life and worship him, he judged them and delivered them over to their enemies. And even though we are no no longer obligated to the old covenant any longer, he still gives us clear commands and principles that govern how we worship. Now, He doesn't outline every single detail of how we worship, but he puts up theological bumper guards so that we avoid the gutters. You can see God's heart in passages like 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, where Paul wrote, if I delay, you may know how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 and 40, which says, let all things be done for building up. All things should be done decently and in order. The late American theologian Hughes Oliphant Old wrote that a certain actions in worship are required because, quote, they are clearly commanded in scripture. The ways and means of doing them we try to order according to scriptural principles. When something is not specifically commanded, prescribed, or directed, or when there is no scriptural example to guide us in how we are to perform some particular aspect of worship, we should, never, we should try nevertheless to be guided by scriptural principles. So when we talk about God's guidance of our worship, we are appealing to scripture to be the ultimate authority over what we do rather than tradition or the current latest cultural trends and fads. Now there's a couple of ways God guides us. God wants us to have the right posture when we worship. Isaiah 66 2 says God will only accept worship that comes from a humble, contrite person who trembles at his word. 
there's a proper heart attitude to have when we want to please God. He also wants us to have the right principles. Hebrews 13, 15 says that it's only through faith in Jesus that we can offer acceptable worship. John 4, 24, 24, Jesus says, we must worship in spirit and in truth. See, acceptable worship must be based on the truth of God's word and not our own imaginations. It also must be done through the right channel, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. So when the right posture and the right principles are in place, then we can also have the right practice. Things like singing, preaching, praying, fellowship, the ordinances of baptism and communion. Colossians 3, 15 through 17 says, let, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, when we encounter areas here of these scriptures where it's very clear, we know what we need to do together on Sunday mornings. But when we encounter areas where the scriptures are silent, then we have freedom and liberty measured with wisdom to then worship based on our preferences or our cultural differences. Questions about lights, lasers, fog machines, style of music, physical expressiveness in worship. How long should a service be? How often should we take communion? And countless other questions are all in the realm of freedom and liberty in Christ. They're matters of wisdom. Since we have the privilege of God's guidance, then there is an expectation that we listen to and are guided by it. We now have a responsibility then. And that's our last point this morning. We have a responsibility to gather together to worship. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, again, summarizes our responsibility. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, believers had the responsibility to worship God through offering sacrifices. The priests were commanded to offer sacrifices every day in the morning and in the evening and on all the holy days. All the rest of Israel was required to offer sacrifices as needed for personal sin and during the special holy days like Passover, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Booths. They would sacrifice their time, their energy, their finances, and animals to worship God. But since Jesus offered himself up as the once for all perfect sacrifice, we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. However, the New Testament still describes our worship in terms of sacrifice. So what sacrifices are we supposed to give? Well, Hebrews 13 says, the first one is to offer up through Jesus our high priest is praise to God. Praise is just a celebration out loud. It's using your words. The writer further describes it as the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Some of your translations might say to confess his name. In the Greek, that word there, confess his name, it comes from this, uh, the Greek word homo legeo. So it's got two words. It's lego, which is to speak, and homo, the same. So to say the same thing about God. Say the same thing he says. When we praise God, we're saying the same thing he says in his word, and we're publicly agreeing with his truth. That's what we do when we confess our sins. 
we're agreeing with what God says about our sin and how, to, and how we need to repent. Now this verse is most likely alluding to Hosea chapter 14, 1 through 2, where the prophet calls Israel to profess allegiance to God by confessing sin, asking for forgiveness and worship through sacrifices. He wrote, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. See, all of our celebration of God is based on his word. Bob Coughlin wrote, true worship is always a response to God's word. We respond to his word by using his word in our response. The word is central to everything we do in corporate worship. We sing the word. We pray the word. We hear the word through preaching. We see the word through the ordinances of baptism and communion. And we live out the word through our fellowship and service. Worshiping through service is what Hebrews 13, 16 describes. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, there's a vertical element to our worship when we all confess God's truth publicly together and praise him. And then there's a horizontal element when we love and serve each other. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he was preparing his disciples for what life was gonna be like when he was gone. It was a lot easier to see and speak to Jesus when he was physically present. The spreading of the good news was easier when Jesus was your leader And he was doing the bulk of the teaching. He was the one doing verbal jujitsu on the Sadducees and Pharisees. Yeah, it was a lot easier. And now he's like, guys, I'm leaving, but you're going to keep doing the work. What? What, uh, How? uh, uh, They were freaking out. And on the night before he's going to die, he spends all of his time trying to encourage them and help them be like, it's okay. I'm not really going to leave you alone. I'm just not physically going to be here. But now that he's leaving, it begs the question, how do you love and worship an invisible savior. If Jesus were physically present, no doubt you would go up to him and express your love and adoration for him and be like, can I do anything for you, Jesus? What, what can I do? But how do you do that when you can't see him, when he's not physically present? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. It's by loving his church. In John 13, 34 through 35, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Your love for Jesus is most clearly displayed by your love and service in the church. To serve the church is to love Jesus. A lack of love for the church translates to a lack of love for Jesus. Now, if you told me you really enjoyed hanging out with me, Tyson, I just, we gotta get together again. It's so much fun. But could you leave Candace at home? Can you leave your wife at home? She's not, that, she's not that great. I would be offended. I'd be very offended. How much more so if we treat the bride of Christ that way? Jesus, you're my king. I love you so much. You're my savior. I'm gonna give you all. I just don't really like being at church. I don't like being around people. I just don't like singing. I, I'm not a people person. That's offensive. The church is Jesus' bride. He paid for her with his life. When we are saved, when we are called by Jesus, he calls us to serve and love him by loving his bride 
That is how we display our love for him. The writers of Hebrews calls the church in general terms to do good to each other. In the context of the original audience who were suffering persecution and being plundered, he specifically calls them to share material possessions with each other. The general principle applies in all circumstances. When we gather, we're not to come only to be served, but to serve. We're to actively look for ways to minister to each other's physical and spiritual needs. Several passages remind us that we have spiritual gifts given to us by the Spirit to use, not for yourself, but for others. And when we don't, when we neglect coming together, when we neglect serving, the body suffers for it. The body suffers for it. It doesn't matter what your spiritual gifts are. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It doesn't matter what kind of trials and suffering you may be going through. You are an indispensable member of this church. There's no such thing as a useless member in God's church. We need each other in order to fully enjoy and celebrate God. So do not neglect this. We are responsible to worship God through faith in Jesus by celebrating him and loving one another. Now, because of this great gift of salvation, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It should be sufficient enough reason to come together and worship just because Jesus has saved you. But he says, do it all the more, do it even more as the day draws near. We are living in the age where the imminency of Christ's second coming is always near and could happen at any moment. And the danger of neglecting to meet together for worship means that you're in danger of falling away from the faith. So don't neglect it because Jesus could come back at any time and you don't want to be caught outside of his house, outside of the faith The scriptures call us to make the commitment to regularly participate in our church's gatherings for the purpose of corporate worship, prayer, fellowship, and service. As we've seen, we do it because it's our purpose, why we were saved. It's a privilege to do so, and we have a responsibility to do so. But I want to give you a couple of quick practical steps that'll help you make, uh, actually live out your commitment. First, pray. If you want to be a committed member to Sunday gatherings, you got to be praying. Pray that God would help you to have the right attitude about corporate worship. Ask him to help you discern the motives of your heart. Ask for forgiveness if you've had a wrong or a weak view of church membership and corporate worship. Ask him to help you to respond to the gospel with sacrificial worship. And when you come on a Sunday morning service after a tumultuous or stressful week or morning, pray that the Lord would help you to discipline your flesh and reorient your heart toward him for his glory. So first you have to pray. Second, you got to prepare. Gathering together for corporate worship doesn't happen spontaneously. It requires a lot of preparation. Protect your Saturday evenings so that you can be ready on Sunday morning. Don't stay up late watching Netflix and movies or playing video games. Don't let your kids stay out late with their friends. Go to bed at a decent time so that you have energy on Sunday morning. Remember, worship involves sacrifice. So what evidence is there that you are sacrificing for God? Are you giving your best to him or are you just giving your leftovers? Parents with young kids, prep everything you can on Saturday night. Lay out clothes, pack your bags so that your Sunday morning isn't as hectic. I'm not saying it won't be hectic, but maybe not as hectic. Be intentional to prepare yourself so that you can give your best whatever you are physically and spiritually able to do to the, for the Lord and for others. And then third, participate. 
So you got to pray, you got to prepare, and then you got to participate. You just got to do it. When you are here, be engaged. Come and offer sacrifices to the Savior and King. Sing, pray, listen, fellowship, serve. In other words, enjoy God and obey him. At times, you're going to need to discipline your body to serve God. When you find yourself distracted, refocus. When you find yourself sleeping, pop in a stick of gum or start taking notes on a notepad. Your personal internal battle is itself an act of worship. But don't forget, keep this in mind, this is so important. What makes your worship acceptable and pleasing to God is not your ability to be perfect, but Christ, who is perfect. Even when we are at our best, or even if you're at your worst on a Sunday morning, our faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that makes your worship and your meager attempt at worship glorifying to God. When you have a good theology of the church, then you will come to see corporate worship as the fullest expression of God's plan for us to enjoy and celebrate him on earth. You'll joyfully embrace this commitment to church membership. Instead of asking, why should I commit to this? You'll say, why wouldn't I do this? Yeah, just as a watch is a complex collection of tiny little pieces that work together, or an orchestra, a complex group of instruments, or the human body, a complex system of parts and organs, they will come together to do something amazing. In all these examples, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, though never less. The same is true of the church. When we gather together for worship on Sunday morning, we are giving full expression to God's plan for us to enjoy and celebrate him because the church is greater than the sum of her parts, but never less. Would you please pray with me? Father, this is such rich truth. It's, just, it's exciting. It's wonderful. It's profound. It's deep and and. Who is worthy of such things? We aren't. But what a privilege it is to be included. Uh, I feel unworthy. I feel dirty. But praise the Lord, Jesus Christ makes me clean. Lord, I, I, we, are, we are not sufficient for such things. And I just pray that you would just continue to help us marvel in wonder and delight about what you have done and so great a, a plan of saving us wicked sinners to honor you and glorify you. Lord, please help us to just enjoy ourselves and delight in being together on Sunday mornings that, that to, to resonate with the psalmist that to be here is better than uh, being anywhere else. Please help us to long to be together so that we can experience the fullness of what you created us and what you saved us to do and to be. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.